Travis Pastrana, an action sports icon with more than a dozen X Games medals. In those moments, I can remember everything and still can to this day. By age four, Pastrana was riding a motorcycle. By 14, he was a world champion. And by 23, landed the first ever double backflip. Really, to, to be complete was to try that double backflip. And I was going back and forth. I'm like, should I, shouldn't I? And his achievements go beyond the bike. From skydiving without a parachute to jumps in the Grand Canyon, Pastrana is famous for his death-defying stunts and numerous world records. What's going through your mind right before you do a dangerous stunt? The most intense, the best, and the scariest moment that you'll ever have. But his life has also had tragedy. When you were much younger, you were in a car accident. You end up seriously injuring the passenger. I, it was the worst time of my life and a lot of pain. Nicknamed the Gimp, Pastrana's endured countless major injuries, some life-threatening. Somebody close to you said that they've never seen anybody that's able to compartmentalize pain to the extent you can. <laughs> How do you do it? When it comes down to it, it's what's worth it. All that's coming up next, right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. So you've been all over for this Nitro Circus Tour. What do you most enjoy about it? I think for us it was just a, you know, a crew of really tight friends that you know, wanted to go travel the world and, and have some fun. And uh, for us it was a great opportunity to go over and you know, go over to Australia. I've never been to New Zealand before. We went there and just, just had a blast because we only do the tour you know, two to three days a week. And the rest of the days it's just you and your best friends you know, all with a similar uh, you know, crazy mentality, just, just having fun and being competitive wherever you go. How much of the show is just kind of trying to one-up the person who went before you? I'd say the second half of the show is entirely about trying to one-up the person in front of you. And as, as staged and choreographed as the show is, when they get up there and they say, okay, best trick, you say, who wants to go first? So whoever wants to go first sets the bar. Everyone behind them has to do something bigger. So if you're not feeling that good that day or you're sick or whatever, you're like, I'll go first. And whoever goes, I want to go last, everyone, man, they're up there. They're like, oh, good luck, buddy. Right. I feel bad for you because you got to do one better than what the person in front of you did. So if the first guy starts out with a double flip, you gotta do something you've never done before. And that's where the show keeps getting bigger and bigger. And you know, there's a lot of crashes, but for the most part, like these guys, they fall well, they're really durable. It's a, you know, a good crew like that. But bottom line is when you go last, you know you're stepping up and you kind of, it's a respect thing among, the, among all your friends. I know I've seen things like front and back flips on wheelchairs. What, what are some of the notable stunts you guys have done? I think that really, uh, that really gets, gets the crowd. I mean, when you got this guy that um, you know, can't walk and He's going down and he's like, you know, what's the worst that can happen? I, I crashed so hard I can, I can walk again. And he kind of jokes and people really don't know how to take, like we have a, a girl on the show, Jolene, who's the only girl that does, you know, backflips on a dirt bike. And then you have Wheels who, you know, is in a wheelchair and he's doing front flips, backflips, trying double backflips. And I'm like, okay, everyone else, they'd love to see crash. You guys, you have to stick your stuff. No one, <laughs> right. no one wants to see you guys fall, but they are, they're, they're so funny and just... They, uh, they love what they do, you know, they're just, just like one of, one of the guys, if you will. I know you've said before the U.S. is kind of jaded to action sports. Why do you think it resonates more with other countries? You know, that's a good question. I think the U.S., you know, proud to be an American. We got, you know, the best of the best. We have so many shows and so much, you know, going on. But I think U.S. in general, especially West Coast, like California, you know, everyone knows someone that, that does these sports. There's like, oh, well, I have a friend or I can do this. Or there's, not to say jaded, but they, they've seen... You know, they've seen everything. And with Hollywood, I mean, you, you, see, you see all this stuff in movies and you don't realize it's, it's CGI or green screen. I mean, we're actually competing against, you know, what they can come up with on a computer. Like, oh, I saw that in a movie. We're like, well, that didn't really happen, but we're trying to, we're trying to replicate that. It. Yeah. The X Games, what would you say they've done for action sports as a whole? 
X Games have given action sports a platform where you can make a living at it. It's a legitimate sport. Um, people used to say, you know, mainstream sports and action sports, and you know, kids growing up now, they don't really see a difference. And action sports are, you know, their parents, if they see their kids really good on a skateboard, they're like, not like, oh, stop doing that hooligan stuff and, you know, go baseball or go something else. They say, hey, you know, you can, you can make money if you do this, and, you know, we're going to encourage you to, to skateboard. We're going to encourage you to ride motorcycles. And I think, you know, for it to be seen as an actual sport and not, you know, not kind of a renegade rebel, you know, derelict kind of sport, I think it's, it's really good. And it's, it's allowing a lot more, you know, a lot more kids and a lot more of the youth to come up that, that are passionate about doing this stuff. Um, you know, it, it gives them a place where they're accepted. And, you know, I think for the Dave Mears and the Tony Hawks, you know, their whole life, their teachers, their, their parents, everyone was saying, you'll never make anything yourself doing this. And they did it because they truly were so passionate about it. They didn't care that they, you know, would end up working construction the rest of their life. They just wanted to ride their bicycles, ride their skateboards. When they're 16, when all their friends, you know, got cars, you know, they got a new, a new skateboard, a new deck, a new uh, bicycle. And I think that was, you know, something that, that's really cool about how action sports has started but it's also what pushed it into the mainstream. And how have you seen it progress in recent years? For sure, given the opportunity to you know, do what I, I love for a living, um, I couldn't ask for, for anything better. And I came in right at a great time. I and mean, when I was 14, they had the first ever uh, world championship for freestyle motocross and was really able to you know, come along with the sport and progress the sport and um, you know, put a little bit of my style into the tricks, and which is you know, it's kind of cheating now because it's you know, my style and my, my length and whatever, and that's, that's where the tricks kind of started from. And, it, it allows, uh, allows me to continue uh, progressing in, in that direction. Today, who would you say the sort of hungriest athlete in the X Games is? Um, you know, that's a, that's a great question. In every sport, there's, there's kids that are coming up in every day. I mean, there's, you know, 14-year-olds that are, are winning X Games. Heck, Ryan Sheckler won X Games, I think, at 13 years old. And it's, you know, beating guys that are 28, 29, 30, and you're like, how is this possible? Well, but, you were doing the same thing. It might not have been in X Games, but, I mean, you were showing guys up, too. Yeah, I mean, I won first X Games at 15, and that was, you know, before I had to run a driver's license on a motorcycle. But it's, it's cool now to see how many kids and how good they are. Um, you know, there's so many, there's literally 14-year-old girls on motorcycles that are doing stuff that would have won X Games, um, you know, in 99. But the sport's progressed so far that they're going to have to, you know, it, it's a real sport. It takes... You know, training, it takes, these guys are, are hard workers. Some that know you have suggested your most dangerous stunt may be when you did the backflip from rooftop to rooftop in <laughs> Los Angeles. Explain how nervous you were and how close a call that was. The roof to roof jump in Los Angeles was actually something I wasn't worried about, but when I saw the roof, the ramps were, were tilted up on about a 15 degree angle, which means they're steeper, which I was like, am I gonna go further or shorter? I didn't, didn't really know, I never really practiced that. The run-in was really short. Um, so it's, it's one of those things where you, you check to make sure your gas is turned on. You check, you know, make sure all the, the bike is running perfect. Make sure you have gas in the tank. I mean, just all the stupid little things you never think about. And you weren't even well rested the night before. <laughs> no, no, not, not like at all. Like in your car or something. It, it did turn out to be that. I mean, I wasn't nervous about the stunt at all until we got to the top and we dropped a bike off the top. And I was like, wow, you know, that's a, that's a hundred feet. If anything goes wrong, I'm, I'm done. And we haven't really, you know, tested in the landing. If I were to land a little too far off the back and we call it whiskey throttle where you, you kind of grab a handful of gas and wasn't able to get to the brake. You go straight off the building. I had um, basically a bunch of my friends were doing Red Rover on the other side to try to pull me off the bike if I were to go too far. And, you know, ended up doing a backflip. Came up just literally six feet from death, basically. And uh, that, was, that was a little more nerve-wracking in the air than I had ever anticipated. Skydiving without a parachute, apparently that's less dangerous than, you know, I, I would think it is. But what was involved with doing that? For me, it was something that I'd always wanted to do. I mean, ever since, really, it sounds stupid, but 
you know, I saw the movie Point Break and Keanu Reeves in the movie, uh, Johnny Utah's character jumped out of a plane without a parachute and caught someone on the way down and you know, always kind of joked. And then I, I, I went parachuting for the first time. And I thought, that's possible, but always kind of in the back of my mind, back of my mind. And you know, no one really would support me, would help me. Like even Red Bull was like, you know what, we don't want to encourage you to do this. And, you know, I went out and funded it myself and paid for everything and found the guys and you know, just had um, ex-military guys that didn't really you know, need their skydive license. And we went down to Puerto Rico and it was a really, really fun jump. The scariest moment was when I jumped out and I was like, why am I not scared? And that scared me that I wasn't scared. But other than that, I think it was, you know, it's, it's pretty safe. I wouldn't recommend anyone else do it, but it was, you know, it was fun. And the double backflip. Talk about the first time you did it in the woods in Spokane, <laughs> Washington. For sure. It was with Andy Bell, and we built a, built a jump for him to do a, um, a backflip bar spin because he kept calling me out on how, how lame that trick was. Okay. And um, after we built the jump, I said, man, I bet you could double backflip this jump. And you never want to say that in front of the Nitro Circus crew because that was it. All right, you're up. Double backflip. And I'd always given those guys such a hard time about backflipping because that was kind of a big deal at the time. And um, you know, everyone kept bailing out and bailing out, and I started the double flip, and I kept bailing out, and they were just loved it. Just heckled me into the ground until I finally landed that trick, and it, it felt good because it was, you know, it was a long time in the making, and I tried in the foam pit for years, but, you know, to actually, you know, pull it off, and that was good. And I, I said I'd never do it again, and then X Games came around, and I was like, you know what, it needs to be done in competition. And then Nitro Circus came around, and I said, ah, well now other people are doing it. Let's do it. Let's do it side by side. Wait, I mean, but the X Games, I mean, that was particularly notable. The crowd went crazy. Take me through the decision from actually just deciding to do it in the X Games all the way up through actually executing it. X Games was kind of a, it was a, a turning point, if you will, in my career. I mean, it was, we had a, from racing, you know, everything was good and then start crashing out, start having a lot of injuries. I was just starting to get into rally. Um, so I was actually leading the, the rally at that point at X Games and the, the final was the next day. And all my team was sitting there and they're like, look, you can't get hurt, you can't get hurt. This is so big. I'd never won a rally in my entire life and I'm sitting here with Colin McRae, you know, within a half a second of, you know, who I looked up to as an idol. Um, you know, and I had a freestyle, which is my best, best sport still to come. Like this was gonna be my biggest X Games and my first event really to, to be complete was to try that double backflip. And I was going back and forth. I'm like, should I, shouldn't I? I was nervous. And we finally rock, paper, scissored, literally, with, uh, with Hubert Rowland, one of, my, one of my mechanics. And uh, Was it the day of the X Games you did? Or? It was actually after I was sitting third place after the first rounds. I said, you know what? This needs to be done. It's like Hubert and Hubert won. He's like, you're going to the top. I said, all right. What, what's that excitement like, doing it for being the first one to do it? I think more than anything, if, if you look at it, you know, especially, you know, any kind of freestyle, it's, it's kind of like an artist. They see a painting and they see something that, that someone else might not have picked up on and they, they try to, you know, portray that to, to the audience. And, you know, for me, it's, it's inventing a trick. It's finding out everything that can go wrong. You know, you go over it in your head. And if you can visualize it and you can see exactly what's going to happen, and then you do it, and if you can eventually figure out, you know, how to make that vision reality, um, and the, the months and sometimes years that go into it, it, it's a really great feeling. And usually you're doing it in front of two or three you know, of your friends. And uh, you know, just that everyone knows how much time goes into it. And then you, you show it in front of the crowd. And they're like, wow, that just happened all of a sudden and that was great. And you know, everyone gets excited, but it's just, it's more, more than that excitement. It's that inward feeling of accomplishment. And that's, that's what's so great about it. What's going through your mind right before you do a dangerous stunt? What are you thinking about? You know, the, the moment after preparation and before the conclusion is, the most intense, the best, and the scariest moment 
that you'll ever have. And for me, that's the greatest moment. That's the moment I live for. It's when you're sitting up there and you're nervous, but you decide then, am I gonna follow through or do I need more practice? And if you decide to follow through, all fear goes out, all worries, anything else that's on your mind, any, um, you know, if it's money or family or whatever, anything else that you're thinking of completely goes away. And the only thing that you're concerned about is, is that moment. And that's, that's kind of cool. It's a good feeling. I read that you said a two-second jump will almost seem like 20 seconds. How so? You know, there's a lot of people that experience this in sports. Um, even like if you read a book by like Eckhart Tolle or something, they, can, they say if you can block out every other, um, you know, every feeling, every emotion, every thought, you can actually slow down time. And it's kind of a, and people are like, oh, you know, it's uh, like witchcraft or this or that or whatever. But it's just, it's simply when your adrenaline takes over and you, everything else is, doesn't matter, it really feels in your mind, I don't know if it's just something speeding up, but like time slows down. And for some people, that's time, it just paralyzes them. And they feel like it's forever and they can't do anything. But for the guys that are really good at action sport, it's the time where you go, okay, this is what I need to do. And you can just step-by-step -step process your way through it. And you know, when everything's going wrong, that's what really saves your life. And that's what I, I love those moments. And you know, I've only had maybe 15 of those moments in my entire life. And most of them have ended up poorly. Really? Um, well, it's, you only get it, for, for me at least, I only get it when I think everything's going wrong. Okay. And I'm scared to death. And then it gives you that, that little extra time to, to kind of pace yourself through. And you can, every smell, every sound, every, every sight, everything. It's, in those moments, I can remember everything and still can to this day. You mentioned you're scared to death. Interestingly, you said the guys that are fearless never make it because they're <laughs> either injured or dead. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> well, I mean, that's, that's a, a bit, bit harsh, but yeah, I mean, I said that because you know, everyone says you have to be fearless to do these, these sports. That's got to be the common denominator, but... It's not. It's not. When, you know, having a foam pit, when I look at, you know, all the guys that come over, and that's what's so great, I get to see how they, they kind of think things through and step things through. And these guys that are your top action sports athletes, they're professionals. They step by step. They know what they can do. They know their abilities. And, yeah, we overestimate our abilities. We're overconfident at times. But, you know, you analyze the risk, and you say, this is worth it. And, you know, you make that judgment call, and you say... This is what he did, this is what I did, this is what I think can be done. What do I need to work on to get to that level? But then, you know, as, as a crowd, you only see that final step. And if they make it, oh, well, obviously they, they practiced or they got lucky. And if they didn't make it, oh, well, they're just crazy and nuts. But really, there's a lot that went into it that you didn't see. And understandably, you said you're better now at sort of analyzing <laughs> risk than you were earlier on. What's involved in that decision-making process? Um, a lot of past experiences. Um, like I was talking to Jimmy Johnson about NASCAR and with these, um, I was racing on kind of, you know, the bias ply tires and, um, you know, rally cars where you're on the dirt and we're getting onto the, you know, with the, the cup and the nationwide series, they're on radials. I said, how do you know when they're going to step out? Because they just go and they just steer into the wall. He's like, um, you hit about 20, 30, maybe 130 walls and you, you kind of get that feel. I was like, gee, thank, thanks, Jimmy. That's going to be really helpful. So that's same, a, same for you. It's the same thing with, uh, with action sports. I mean, you know what the feel is when you hit a certain jump at a certain angle and your brain is an amazing calculator. You know, a lot of the guys, you're like, oh, they're not very smart, but they're really smart at what they do. So, I mean, a lot of the guys are smart off book smart and um, bike smart, but most of the guys just really bike smart. I know these are outdated, but some of what I've read that's been done to you, four ACL reconstructions, a couple of back surgeries, broken tibia, broken fibia, metal plate holding your left shoulder together, at least 10 blood transfusions. 
Um, I think only six blood transfusions. So you're, talk about you're 14, 15 years old and what happens that nearly killed you. Um, well, bottom line was I didn't go fast enough. <laughs> I mean, it's as simple as that sometimes, but um, everything was feeling good and there was a big jump on the course and you know, I wanted to, I went outside the stadium and came through with, I thought enough speed to jump it and took off and right away I was like, oh, didn't go fast enough and came up short. And um, basically the whole spinal column uh, went through the, the pelvis, shattered the sacroiliac joint, and they ended up having to fuse the, the SI joints together and, you know, almost bled out. Um, that was the third known case in, in medical history to, to have that happen where you didn't bleed out or, or die or whatnot. So definitely lucky and, you know, definitely uh, live a very blessed life in, in that way. But I, in my opinion, I didn't feel like it was lucky. If I was lucky, I would have made the jump like I had intended to and would have kept going. But when I woke up from that, the first thing I thought was, well, can you get this back together so I can try that jump again before they take it down? And you know, it was just, it's part, of, it's part of the sports. And if it's worth it to you, there's no better life. I've heard stories of you still doing stuff that it's like, you gotta be kidding me. Yeah, I was talking to Andy Bell and he was telling me about Nitro Circus, May 2010, what happens with your collarbone? Oh, that was bad, yeah. So collarbone, they told me to stay off the, uh, the, the gigantic ramp side. Okay. Basically, they're like, look, we just need, we need you for the motorcycle side. You gotta do a double backflip at the end of this show. I was like, I really wanna try, you know, the 720 that I was trying on a dirt bike, I wanna try on a bicycle. So I talked to one of my friends, Dusty, and to go into the top, and I'm like, let's hit it at the same time. And we had ramps set at distances we had never really hit, and we're like, we can do this. And we both actually landed exactly the same way. I broke my collarbone, and we're both sliding, wind knocked out of us heading there. He's like, how'd it go for you? I'm like, oh, about the same. And then I had to get up and I wasn't really sure. I was like, I think it's broken. But you know, right then, uh, Cam Sinclair called me out. I was like, double backflip. I was like, right. All right. And I was just thinking on the way up. I'm like, and you knew it was broken though. Pretty I knew much it was broken, point, right? but I had a plate in there and I was like, the plate couldn't have broken. Maybe it just bent. Maybe the bone's broken, but the plate's still holding on. And, and I took off and I just felt the, the collarbone kind of went and the bike sideways and I'm pulling around. It's amazing what adrenaline overrides almost any kind of pain that you can have. And I was able to pull the double backflip around and actually did the entire next show and then went home and the plate was broken and the bone was broken all the way through. So what I was feeling was the plate was getting held up on the, on the bone on the top and bottom. But you know, there was enough around that area to kind of support it. So. And what was the purpose of the plate? The metal oh, plate? Cause it was, I had broken it before. So I had to plate it to. Somebody close to you said that they've never seen anybody that's able to compartmentalize pain to the extent you can. <laughs> How do you do it? It's just what, what needs to be done. I definitely don't have a higher pain tolerance than, than other people, but. What do you mean? <laughs> well, it still hurts. I get a paper cut, I'm like, ow, you know? I mean, stub your toe, you know, it's still the, still the same pain, but when it comes down to it, it's what's worth it. Um, you know, I had, for instance, with, I blew out my ACL and my LCL, and which meant there was no stability, and there's, a, there's an artery that goes um, you know, through there that said basically you can bleed out if, if it does it, and the, so the doctors are like, look, you know, don't do this. And, I couldn't really walk, but I was, I was like, duct tape my knee together. So we, we decided to duct tape the knee together. My mom actually had, had someone get, try to get what, me What off happened of, on the airplane? Yeah, on the airplane. My mom had a security come into the airplane to pull me off the airplane when I was coming to, to LA. Because I told her I was going to see the doctors. And I did, and they told me not to go. So I told her it was fine. She called the doctors. Found out that they said, absolutely not. Do not go out. So she had security come try to escort me off the plane. And I was like, no, 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 we, we've already gone over this. It's okay. She's like, she told me you'd say that. I was like, wow, my mom's smarter than I think she is. <laughs> but anyway, we went out there. We duct taped my whole knee together so it couldn't bend and uh, couldn't go out literally with duct tape um, to the boot, to the knee brace, and all the way up to the, the top of the leg. And it was basically like a cast. And I was able to do the trick. And 
I won the X Games. Did they end up letting you go on the airplane? They did, yes. I was basically, I was like, look, sorry, officer, I am over 18 and I have the right to, he's like, all right, hey, your call. How many concussions have you had? I don't remember. Over 25? <laughs> no, I mean, hey, what, 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 do you, what do you really call a concussion? I mean, I, if, I have no idea. Yeah, you see, I mean, there's, there's times when you hit your head and you're just a little dingy. There's times when you're not actually concussed, but you don't remember a little bit of time and yeah. I mean, do they count or no, it's, I'm just, I'm actually just joking on that, but it's concussions really scare me. And they're the, they're the thing that I have a few friends that have had knocked themselves out on a daily basis, not daily, but that's an exaggeration, regularly, but sure. regularly. And they're still just as normal, just as smart, just as quick as they ever were. And I've had some friends that have had one concussion and you know, they're not the same. So, you know, I don't really think in my unprofessional opinion that you know, doctors know a lot about concussions about the brain. I mean, there's a lot of research being done, but it's basically we try to avoid that at all costs. And that's the one thing that's worse than a broken bone. It's worse than anything. Yeah, I talked to somebody close to you who's just kind of worried for <laughs> you personally about just like the long-term quality my of, of life <laughs> because, of, you know, just all the wear and tear and all the injuries you've had. How much, if at all, does that concern you long-term? Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, no one in the sports we do are, are stupid in, in the matter that, you know, if you're in a sport, you know there's risks. And you know, they're looking into football and they're like, oh, this is a dangerous sport or this and that. But you know, as much as it is, what are the alternative is a real job. We get to travel the world. You know, there's I keep getting back to, to this, but I have my best friends and the closest group of friends you could ever imagine. And we travel the world and we get to ride dirt bikes and we get to we get to play. We our work, maybe one day, maybe two days a week, maybe once a month is what we do for fun every day. And if we don't, if we don't do our, our job, we'll go and we'll pay to do the same job anyway. So uh, for us, I feel like I've lived and experienced more than you know, most people will ever experience in their entire life. And most people go through life trying not to die. I go through my life making sure that I live. And you're willing to take most risks, but I understand you're increasingly concerned when you're doing a stunt with somebody else, uh, when somebody else is involved. So like the, the Grand Canyon jump with Jolene, uh, tell me about what you guys were doing and then what you thought was going to happen. Grand Canyon Jump was the closest I've ever come to have a heart attack. I actually, I lost. Really? I, I lost like all my, my motor skills, my vision. This is still while I was under canopy. Um, <laughs> so I went with Jolene, who's a, a good friend of mine, Nitro Circus. And she's, I said, look, I want a, a girl that can go on the back of a street bike and it'll be a cool closing to the, the 199 Lives movie we were making. Now we, we had fun with it, but so we went and she only had a chance to get you know, 25, 26 skydives in. Uh, the minimum that they'd recommend is between 250 and 500 skydives before you do any base jumps, let alone a tandem base jump, let alone on a motorcycle off of a, a ramp. And every skydive person was like, you can't do that, you're gonna kill her, she's gonna die, you're gonna be responsible. And I'm like, I know Jolene, I know my friend, and I went to Jolene, I'm like, look, I don't want you to do the stunt. She's like, if you pull me from this stunt, I'm like, all right, just know what you have to do. And sure enough, things went a little wrong. She got caught on the motorcycle. You know, she was stuck underneath the bike and there's a few hundred pound motorcycle over her head. She doesn't have much skydive experience. She has five seconds to pull the chute. And I'm, I'm okay, I know I'm gonna be fine. I'm just looking and I'm, I couldn't pull the chute. I was watching her go, watching her go down, watching her go down. And finally, she opens up, she opens up towards the, the rock wall, almost hits the rock wall, turns around and you know, for me, like literally my peripheral vision went in, I got lightheaded, I felt like I was gonna have a heart attack and that was, that was like, okay, I was responsible for one of my best friend's lives and I gave her the okay to do this and I went against what everyone else had told me 
And you know, she hit the bottom. She was like, that was the greatest thing ever. And she wasn't scared at all. And, and I hit the bottom and I, was, I went down to hands and knees and I'm thinking, Julian, I can, I can never do this again. Like that was, that was insane. Reading about that, it, it got, got me wondering, when, when you were much younger, you were in a, a car accident. Uh, were you driving your car very fast late at night? You end up seriously injuring the passenger injuries uh, that the person will have for the rest of their life. To what extent did that play into any sensitivities you have now when you're doing stunts that involve other people? You know, at 18, I thought it was a great idea to, to get a Corvette. And, you know, everyone said it was a stupid idea. I was like, no, I'll be responsible, I'll be mature. And, you know, had had a friend in the car and you know, some things happened that were outside my control and I made some bad mistakes and we were going way too fast and, you know, went into a tree and that's, I woke up, I was unconscious and I'm sitting there, you know, heads actually, you know, hands, everything's dragging the ground because the, the car was completely destroyed and, you know, we're at a stop and I'm just trying to figure out what's going on, blood everywhere. and. I have my friend that's just yelling, I can't feel my legs, I can't feel my legs. And, you know, that I, it was the worst time in my life that for the next year, like, I really took a step back from everything and I, I didn't want to be anywhere. I didn't, I wanted to be, didn't want to have friends at that point. Like, I was, you know, kind of just in my own world to say that I don't ever want to do that to, to anyone again. And, you know, now, you know, Matt actually, as a positive as a person as he is, he took that and, you know, he's a, a world-class, um, you know, athlete right now where he's doing uh, doing triathlons and, and mostly doing, you know, with the bicycle stuff. And uh, he's in the Olympic Training Center all the time for the Paralympic team. And, you know, he's more motivated, more focused. And he said, you know, that coming back from that, he wishes now that he had half of the strength that he had to come, you know, coming back from that and working so hard, um, you know, just to be able to walk again. He wished he had that strength in motocross and knew how hard he had to work. And he's like, man, maybe I would have been you know, maybe I would have been, you know, Ricky Carmichael or whatnot, and it's, uh, it's still tough for me to see, you know, even though he is, I feel like he's, he's done great, and he's really excited, and he's, he moved to California, and that's all he does is just ride his bicycle every day, and, you know, he's in a good place, but it's still hard to, for me to see that he's not ever able to be the person that, that he was before. He loved riding motorcycles, and he can ride, but it's, it's not the same, and that's, uh, that's, that's tough. The nightmares, how common is that among action sports stars? It was really funny. I, we put in the, the movie 199 Lives um, about the nightmares, and I was, I was skeptical. I was like, I don't really want that out to the general public, but I'm like, well, if we're going to do it, let's you know, do everything. And, and it, was just, it was neat to see how many military guys, actually more than anything, have come up to me and been like, dude, I've got the same thing. Or, dude, there's some guy that, that's in you know, our unit or our division or our whatever that he's got, he screams every night or he does this. Really? And I don't know per se that it's um, you know just action sports or you know everyone there's a lot of people that have night terrors but it was kind of interesting for me how many more of my peers actually actually had that even like Ryan Sheckler um, you know got up and most of them they kind of slows down as they get older uh, where me it's it's kind of sped up so I'm not exactly sure what what the deal is with that but uh to what extent is you if you tried to fix it or is there anything that uh, can be done for something? I, I tried to fix it a little bit when you know because when I have broken bones or something and I still get up and I wake up and I'm jumping and I realize I have a broken ankle when I'm in the air or tumbling down a set of steps or I've knocked my front tooth out. The only time I've knocked a tooth out was actually having a night terror. Dogs, right? Yeah, I was diving away from dogs and I was in the air going, I don't have any dogs. And just, yeah, tumbling down a set of steps. So yeah, I mean, yeah, that kind of sucks. And your mom said she's literally almost had to jump on top of you when you're in a hospital bed to avoid you having to jump yeah, up. But what, what happens? Some I remember, some I don't. Um, most of the times that I remember now, if I if I 
if I can actually um, feel like I'm awake, then I can just sit there and be like, okay, I'm you know, schizophrenic or something and just go back, back right back to sleep. But most of the time that I'm running around now, I just, I have no idea. So really, I know I wake up and I'm just in midair or running full sprint through the desert or down the road or, you know, out of my hotel room. I can get out of locked doors. I can, I mean, I'm fully functional, but. A couple uh, stories involving the night terrors I was interested to you, you telling. Uh, a hotel lobby in like your underwear? Yeah, I mean, it, it's good reason for me not to sleep naked for sure and definitely sleep with some shorts on. I was actually Mardi Gras. I went to sleep early because we, we had a race or whatnot and um, ended up, woke up in the elevator. I was like in my underwear. Door opens at the bottom. Half my friends are sitting there. I'm like, hey, how's it going? Walk to the front desk. I'm like, uh, need a key for my room. Like, do you have any ID? I'm like, does it look like I have any ID right now? <laughs> so it, it was nice. That worked out. How about the plane ride, like after 9-11? Oh, really, uh, really bad. That only one time. That's, I'm actually really afraid. People say, what, what are you scared of? I am most afraid and petrified of going to sleep on an airplane and waking up running through the, the halls because right before 9-11, actually, luckily. Right before, okay. I ended up uh, was going to the race, so most of my friends were on that flight as well. And uh, I took off running at full sprint, yelling, just dropping all kinds of four-letter words, screaming top of my lungs to the back. And we were on the runway still, because I was just tired. We fell asleep before we even took off. And I had to walk back past all of my friends and all these people that were completely petrified, and all the way back up to the front where my seat was, and sit down. And I was like, it's okay. And flight attendants on. Everyone must remain in their seats. I'm like, yeah. yeah That's all they did? That was it. And then we took off. Went back to sleep. What's the deal with you and elevators? <laughs> oh, man. We've had some great experiences in elevators. but <laughs> So I hear. Stuck in a few. Oh, after the, the Palms experience, though, I don't think we're going to jump hey, in. Tell, tell me about the Palms one. So um, it was a mass birthday party. We all, a lot of the, our crew has birthdays around the, you know, late uh, or early October, basically. So Missed we your meet and greet. Missed the meet and greet. We uh, just came from the from the pool. Um, a couple of us had a, had had a few drinks and um, we got in got in the elevator and we're packed in the elevator and we all decided we should jump up and down. But even when there are no drinks, this is something oh, you'll fund. No, yeah. well, yeah, but we're we're after this last one. I think okay. I think we're about done. So we jumped up and down the elevator, and it stopped. Well, the problem with the Palms elevator is that it's like 50 floors between the bottom and the top, and there's no middle floor, so they couldn't get to us for two hours. So uh, three of the guys had to go to the bathroom. Uh, one of the guys um, in the elevator was nauseous already before he got in, so he's throwing up in the elevator. This poor girl that was escorting us from the pool to the top um, actually ended up, uh, you know, we, we made friends with her by, by the end, but she was like, I'm claustrophobic, I'm claustrophobic. Like, we're so sorry. And uh, yeah, we, we won't do that again. I, don't. <laughs> I understand you're an ordained minister as well? <laughs> yes, yes. I uh, actually married a, a few of my friends that, right, I was the reverend at their uh, ceremony, I guess, if you will. He said the most nervous he's ever seen you, uh, Andy, was when you were the reverend at, at his wedding. How'd it go? It actually went okay. I, I feel like that's a, there's a lot of responsibility there. Um, you know, with, with everything that we do, there's, you know, responsibility. But uh, for me, it was, you know, something I took seriously and said, okay, if I get ordained. Really seriously, like, right? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll get my reverend, but I did it for uh, my friend Jim. His sister was like, look, we really want, you know, kind of an, a more informal wedding. And I was like, yeah, no problem. That sounds good. Well, she gave me about 20 pages that I had to memorize. And she's like, I want you word for word. Don't mess up. And 
I was like, you gotta being be kidding. Being serious? You, yeah, being completely serious. So I was like, you gotta be kidding me. So it was like the most stressful, like literally month of my life trying to get ready for this, this ceremony that I was gonna do. And you know, I feel like I came through all right and we did it. And I was like, I'll never do that again. And then um, to my team manager for the Subaru Rally Team USA, uh, Lance, and his brother said, hey, would you marry us? It's gonna be real mellow. And theirs, theirs was real mellow. They wrote everything down for me. I read from a page. Andy Bell's was the same way, but I keep getting suckered into this stuff, man. I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm done. That's it, it's stressful. He, he said to bring up, uh, you were the first one to go streaking post-wedding. <laughs> Andy Bell would, yeah, anyway, so I, I just announced. I said, you know, we're gonna go streaking from the, from the, the ocean to the, the pool. And there was the entire I, wedding party, right? The entire wedding party was made up of about 60 people. And all of a sudden, we are all streaking, running full sprint from the beach to. Well, now, Andy's parents were there, and Danielle's parents were there, and everything. And I can just remember running by, and I'm like, yeah. And they're like, all right. I'm like, oh man, this is probably not, I'm going to regret this in the morning. <laughs> but so I guess most reverends probably wouldn't, wouldn't have. I, Anyway, next subject. <laughs> At NASCAR, uh, do, to what extent did your interest in you know, car racing initially come from the fact that you just wanted to lessen the wear, the constant wear and tear and injuries on, on the body? And they always say, with age, get a cage. And a lot of the top motocrossers, I mean, Jeff Ward, he got second at Indy 500 after you know, winning Supercross and Motocross championships. Uh, Rick Johnson's won the Baja um, you know, 1000 in trophy trucks, and Brian Deegan's won some, uh, uh, some off-road truck races. And, you know, it's, it's really, if you're really competitive and you love competition, that's you eat, breathe, and sleep racing. It's difficult um, to just stop, you know, if your body's too injured or whatnot. And um, for me, rally cars were what really seemed the, the most, the closest fit. I was really good at, at reading, you know, dirt as far as knowing where the traction was. And um, I liked the fact that we had a co-driver now and it was kind of a balance that I had never really experienced before. And that team camaraderie, it was something I was looking for that would be really cool. And, you know, that worked out really well. And then, you know, with that, I was decided that NASCAR was, you know, we won four championships in rally and said, you know, where's the most competition? Where is the most competitive sport on earth? And frankly, it's, it's NASCAR. It's because everybody is so close. Everybody is so good. All the cars are so even. And if anyone gets ahead, they make a rule to make sure that, that everything's even. And it's the probably most difficult sport in the world to ever get an advantage on. And I like that because no matter what happens, no matter how bad your car is, no matter what your setup, by the end of that race, you have to figure out a way to work with your team, to work with the other drivers on that track, and to keep your car in one piece, and to figure out how to be there at the end of the race. And that's, for me, pretty exciting. And I know this is a sport you initially, long while back, were making fun of. So as you get into it, how did that sort of change your level of respect for the skill level that's necessary? You know, I've always had respect for anyone that makes it to the top of, of any sport. I mean, knowing what it takes to get to the top of a sport, you know that, I mean, it doesn't matter if it's chess or ping pong or uh, you know, badminton or, or, you know, NASCAR. It's, it's difficult to be the best at whatever you do. But you realize it's more than just driving in an oval. Quickly, so right? for me, I always had a shirt that said, it said boring in NASCAR print. And I wore that to all the, all the rallies and stuff. And then I, I had an opportunity, a guy got hurt, um, actually broke his back uh, crashing a, a sprint car and had the opportunity to get in the sprint car. I was like, ah, oh, that'll be fun. Yeah, this will be awesome. I'll jump right in. And, you know, I qualified like barely, barely at the, I was very back of the pack qualifying, barely made it in. And it was cool because uh, Tony Stewart was at that race and I had a really good car because the guy actually was, you know, leading the championship that, that had crashed out and um, that I was taking his place basically. And he was spotting for me and it was, it was so much fun. And he was just, you know, we were just 
uh, Days of Thunder and Talladega Night just dropping lines, you know, back and forth and just having fun and talking to him on the radio the whole time. And I didn't get lapped the whole time, and it was actually ended up making it into the top 20. And, you know, I was, I was pretty excited. I was like, this is really cool. I never knew how much went into this stuff. And, you know, those cars were so sideways, and it was, oh, it was a blast. And from that point on, I started looking into teams and said, okay, what team can I get in with that's going to be, you know, it's going to accept who I am and what I do, but at the same time, you know, allow me to, to be competitive. And I found that with Walter Bracing. How challenging was it to find that, though? It, it took a solid three years of, of really, really? Know, working with, uh, with my agent, uh, you know, Travis Clark and Steve Astfin and, and just saying, what can we do to, to make a team where I still want to do Nitro Circus? I still want to do X Games. I want to have fun. If I want to go base jump, you know, the building, the hotel that I'm staying at that night, I don't want to have my contract where it says, you know, I'm fired. Basically, and uh, you know, even teams like Red Bull, who are, you know, known for for fun, known for you know just just a good time. You know, we're still very much look. If you do NASCAR, it's 100% NASCAR and nothing else. And I found with with racing motorcycles that that's just not how I operate. I mean, when I tried to be the most serious that I ever was, I was the worst that I ever was. I actually, when I didn't have fun, when I wasn't over enthusiastic, when I wasn't just give her everything she's got, you know, was was more toned back. It wasn't me, and it wasn't how I do well. So. You know, I feel if I can come in underprepared and overenthusiastic in every other sport it's worked, with NASCAR I'm finding it might not. And maybe I will have to drop everything, but I want that to be my choice. And You're finding it might not? With every other sport in my entire life, I've been able to make up time by being willing to take risk. In Supercross, it was the whoop section. I'd come in and you could close your eyes and pin it and make up two seconds a lap. And if you were a second a lap slower, you'd only have to do that every other lap. If you were on par, You'd have to do it maybe once. Um, with you know, with rally, if you want to make up time, you listen to your co-driver. If he says you know, you know left six minus over blind crest uh, through narrow gate, you know you can hold it wide open. You know you're going to be in the air as you go through the narrow gate. But you can make up time by being aggressive. Um, with NASCAR, you have to make up time by being good. And uh, we're going to try to get good. <laughs> Tell me about. Uh this house you have uh, in Maryland. I hear it's quite the <laughs> compound. Uh, it's definitely the compound. Uh, my hero growing up was Guy Cooper, and uh, he had a go-kart track and a pit bike track and a motocross track and an enduro track, and we've got all that and a mechanical bull and a rock climb wall, foam Really? All, all that? Okay. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, trampolines. We've got um, jumps that jump onto the trampoline. You jump off the trampoline, so you can do, like, flips onto it with the bicycle, flips off of it on, down to the skate park. we got mega ramps. we got... Uh, resi landings, we got pretty much everything that you could play with. And the problem is every time I go home, I'm usually hurt. So I have all this playland, and I just get to watch my friends all, all, all use it. <laughs> How involved were you with designing it? Oh, everything is, is pretty much, like I, I built almost everything. Um, I'm on the dozer all the time, and, and you build the courses, and um, I really enjoy that. It's kind of like, a, it's kinda like your, your artwork that you get to build, and then you get to go try it. And uh, that's so much fun. You get to change the tracks all the time. And I was, at first, I was like, I just want you know, a little rhythm section around this area. And uh, we poured a slab of concrete. My dad came out and, and got it all poured. And he's like, well, what if we do this? And what if we do this? I'm like, yeah, it sounds great. That sounds great. And we turned a, a $50,000 project into a $300,000 project. <laughs> and now I have pretty much the, the most amazing skate park, um, I, I'd say, in the, in the United States. Um, the problem is I have to really learn how to use a lot of the stuff. I can make it around the course now, but I'm still, it's just such a new challenge for me. Bicycling was something that I can do, but I'm not really great at. And, most people go from bicycles to motorcycles. I want to go from motorcycles and, and learn how to ride a bicycle. How about your favorite feature of the house? Favorite feature of the house? Um, 
It's definitely not the foam pit. I have to say that that pit is pretty much hell uh, all summer. It, it's my it's like a death trap in there. But um, um, probably the gym, and that's just my whole basement's the gym, and it's just so much easier to wake up in the morning unmotivated, motivated. You walk down to go to the hot tub, and you're like, ah, all right, I'll stretch. And then once you stretch, you know, you start doing everything. And we we have what we call the buzzard club. They come over, all the old guys, my dad and all his friends come over three times a week, and then we have all the uh, to work out. And uh, you know, it's they're just laughing and cutting up, and it's three hours from you know, from 4:30 in the afternoon for the next three hours. It's just uh, just fun, and it really makes you want to want to go there and work out. And it really brings a lot of people, like um, a lot of my cousins, uh, football players for University of Maryland, or you know, go to the Naval Academy, which is right down the road from the house. So they're always in there, and it's just no matter how lazy you want to be, it's impossible because at six o'clock in the morning, someone's knocking on the door, going, "Hey, I'm using the gym." You're like, "Ah, all right, I'll go down there with you," and that's. That's kind of what I like the most about the house is that it, it motivates you. Or if you don't want to, you're like, you know what? I don't feel like pushing motorcycles right now. And you see someone do a double backflip with a full twist into the foam pit, and you're like, I want to try that. Or you see someone do a front flip. Or it's just the house is the most motivating place on the face of the earth, and I'm glad it's my house. Thanks for listening to the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger for hours of extra content. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.